It's One American Podcast live with Greg Reese. Greg, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you doing, Chase? I am really excited to speak with you. The uh, first time that we interacted, I think it was when I was guest hosting um, Harris's show on InfoWars, The American Journal, and you called in, and I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought, oh, man, I'd love to get him on the podcast. Yeah, that was a good uh, conversation. Yeah. So um, I want to hear a little bit about uh, your story. Where does this all begin for you? For me? Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, it begins with uh, childhood, really. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I just did a... Um, I just actually, interestingly enough, I, well, I wrote a book about it, but I just inter- uh, talked about the whole story on my podcast at Substack uh, on a free version, if anyone's interested in hearing the whole details. It's a bit of a long story, but the short version is um, I experienced a strange, what one would call ritual abuse. It wasn't as nearly as bad as some people have had it. There was no, um, it was more of a mental uh, kind of situation. I say, I would describe it as um, I was being auditioned to see if I had the psycho gene. It took place at a Jesuit house in Toronto. When my uncle was graduating as a Jesuit, I was invited to spend the night there. And it, there was a, you know, black robes and an altar and a body and stuff like that. Um, traumatic to my mind. Uh, it threw, it took me years to put it together. Um, it was actually a memory that I never lost, but I thought it was a dream. For like I talked about it actually for years afterwards. Uh, I remember as a young child talking about this weird dream I had, and then it wasn't until I was 36 that I sort of pieced it together, the details of it uh, through meditation and prayer and uh, and just some detective work, contacting my uncle and getting some stories and stuff. Um, but what it did is it it did a few things. It created the conspiracy theorist in me. I uh, from uh, from that age on. I knew that everyone, well, I didn't trust anyone. I, um, and I definitely didn't trust any organized religion or any government at all. Uh, I assumed if you had a robe or if you had an official uniform that you were lying to me, um, which was a benefit for me, I think. That was the benefit that it gave me because it um, made me question everything. But then the negative part of it was as a result of the trauma and the confusion of the whole thing, I went off on a bad tangent. It was actually the best tangent you could get for this type of thing. Cause a lot of people end up suiciding or becoming a monster. <clears throat> I just became, um, I suppose promiscuous with women and, uh, heavy into drugs. So I, I sort of found solace in pleasure, I guess you could say, um, to deal with it. But then later on in life after hitting bottom, um, I, went down a path of, I guess you could say the shadow work confronting what it was that was tormenting me and haunting me, you know, exploring my past. I knew there was something in my past. I always did. Ever since I was a kid, I knew there was something. So once I finally faced that, which was basically after I was red pilled, quote unquote, red pilled, which was 2004, that was followed up by um, questioning everything, which included questioning meditation and prayer. And once I started doing that, I had some very profound experiences that that directed me towards looking inside and figuring out what was going on. That took about 10 years. And then in 2017, I finally was able to let go of everything. And I've been present ever since. And in 2018, I got the job at InfoWars. So, I mean, my life, my entire life basically was leading up to the point I'm at right now. 
I don't know if any of that makes sense, but um, it makes makes sense. Um, Absolutely. So when you called your uncle as an adult, did he, did he like, it was like, Oh yeah, yeah. There was dead body in a ritual. (laughs) Like (laughs) that's a good question. So uh, what it was, was um, the, the memory that I had was being in a window well that I just, for some reason knew was in his room at the Jesuit house. And I was, I, it was like the, you know, if you're a kid, it's the kind of window well you could crawl up and sit on top of it. Whereas maybe not so much as an adult, you know, I don't know if you know, I don't know if that's the proper term window well, but it was, um, there's like a ledge. And I just remember being, looking out the window in the middle of the night. Sill? Sill maybe. And I just remember looking out in the middle of the night, I was the only one awake in the room and I was like curled up in a, like a fetal position, kind of scared. And so I, right away, I was like, well, that is definitely kind of a red flag. So that's what got me to contact him. My uncle is not altogether there. Um, I remember the story at the time was that he had like some kind of brain tumor or something, but he's a brilliant. Looking back on it, I say he has all the traits of mind control. I don't think he was aware at all of what the deal was, but, but he's a strange guy. He's got a great memory. So I reached out to him. This would have been 30 years later when I reached out to him. And I, and I told him what I just told you. And I said, can you fill in the blanks? Do you remember anything? And his response, he, came, he got right back to me and he said, he says, yes, uh, I was graduating and the whole family came up to watch me graduate. And father so-and-so said, hey, why don't you let this little kid here spend the night in the Jesuit house? And the family was like, okay. So all the family was in the hotel. I spent the night in the Jesuit house. And then in the middle of the night, you slept, walked out of the room. And then a few hours later, father so-and-so returns you to the room. And uh, the next day, someone asked you, did you have a good time? And you said yes, and blah, blah, blah. And that was the story. Very strange. The whole sleepwalking thing. Um, Definitely, that was the answer I needed, though, to get me to dig deeper. Because once I got that answer, I was kind of like a detective. I was like, all right, well, there's something going on here. So when you looked into it, were there other stories of kids having experiences where they're sleepwalking and staying in Jesuit houses? I mean, what did you discover? I that's something I haven't gotten into, but I do. I did sleepwalk during those. After this, I sleptwalked mm. for a few years following this. Um, I have done some research, and if you look into the dark side of the Jesuits, they are known for using drugs and hypnosis. Uh, they're considered the experts on the on the matter of using drugs and hypnosis. And in when I was digging deeper. Like, um, once I kind of recovered all the memories, I wanted to see if there was anything else that I forgot. Cause anyone, anyone who's listening, who has ever experienced this kind of recovered memory and to be, and, and like, to be clear, like I said, once I recovered it, I realized that I never forgot it. It's a very strange, right. it's almost, it's impossible right. to describe. Um, it's almost like you're ignoring it or you're pretending it's not there or right. something or it's like you find, old, you find an old video file on your computer and it's like, it's always been there, but you just yeah. don't know it. There you go. You right. There you go. So once that, once I realized that, then I got very curious and I, and I, for, I was almost obsessive over it. Like, is there anything else? And, um, I don't think I, I, I don't think so. I think I'm for whatever reason, I'm extremely lucky because, um, like I said, it was almost like they wanted me to hurt this body. They, there was a woman on a, on a slab. Everyone was wearing robes. They told me they were gods. They said, we want to make you a god. Uh, but first, you have to help this woman. And, and in order to help her, they put a knife in my hand, and they wanted me to stick the knife in the, in the woman. I didn't. I remember very clearly. Was she feeling, alive? 
she, 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 I don't know. She was, um, her eyes were closed and I couldn't tell, uh, whether if she was alive or not. She was under, a, she was, I could tell she was, I remember her, she appeared to be naked and she was under a black cloth on a, on a, like a slab. And, um, I remember two things. I remember not wanting to do it. And I remember pretending to do it because I wanted to, um, you know, um, you want to be a God, but not have to do any of the work. <laughs> well, I didn't want to, I remember thinking almost like, uh, like, like I, like a need to, to like, like uh, I don't Adam know, fake please the, apple. the gods Adam in the room the apple the whole time. <laughs> he didn't really and, eat it. He did not inhale. <laughs> right. And, uh, but I didn't fool anyone because then the room was immediately full of like a major disappointment. Like, and I think that's the thing that, that haunted me throughout the years was this, this feeling of, um, of failure. Like the entire room was just like disgusted with me because there was like a, it was like, I wasted everyone's time kind of thing. And then throughout therapy, I, uh, I did, I sought out people that specialized in, in this sort of thing. Cause this is a very common, much more common thing than I think people would like to know. And, and once again, I have to say, I'm extremely lucky and I don't even understand how I got away so lucky because most people that are involved in this have horror stories. I mean, this is a horror story. Don't get me wrong. But compared to other people, like a lot of people, it'd be, it's not something you can easily talk about. But for some reason, right. that was it for me. And um, I failed their exam. But it, there definitely seemed to be some type of drugs uh, involved. And I think that's where the whole dream thing came from was, I mean, mm -hmm. the best I could put it together is they, that's what they put in my head, some type of program with some drugs that this was a dream, this was a dream or something like that. Who knows? But um, wow. as far as the sleepwalking thing, I haven't gone too deep into that, but I do find that very interesting. Like, it makes me wonder about sleepwalking because it was a habit I picked up after that that wore off, which is curious. Mm. So... In, in terms of therapy, you know, I have, I have such mixed feelings about therapy. I've never seen a therapist myself. Uh, fortunately, I, I haven't had to at least, or I haven't, I haven't been aware that I need to. <laughs> and uh, my, my, my reluctance around it is I know a lot of people who have gone to the wrong therapist and come out sort of, for lack of a better expression, more fucked up than they walked in. Yeah. And so how did you like go about finding the right person to talk to? Well, I... I've met um, more effed up therapists than cool ones. Mm. Fortunately, because of this experience, you know, like I said, the, 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 the benefit I got from this experience was a, a knowledge that you can't trust strangers. Right. Like I knew that was ingrained in me deeply from the age of five. Um, I've actually been able to refine it over time, but you know, growing up, I just didn't, I just, everyone was a creep and a monster basically. So um, whenever I'm dealing with anyone, I pretty much by default, if they're a stranger, I by default, I assume that they are um, no good. And uh, you know, the past few years of COVID, I think has sort of vindicated, vindicated that uh, prior assumption. Humans are really not that, every human likes to think they're great and everyone else is a problem. Uh, but the fact is, is humans are extremely flawed. So I just knew in my gut, I just didn't go with anyone who I didn't trust, basically. And it took me a while, but I eventually found therapists that I trust. And the ones that I trust, it's pretty simple. They, um, it's all just talk. You know, that's all it is. Like, for example, um, there's, I think there's different types of hypnosis, but the hypnosis I experienced was totally 
it was all about awareness. It was a, it was the same thing as like meditation. Like if people who think you're talking about the hypnosis with your therapist, not yeah. hypnosis from okay, gotcha. People who think that a lot of people think meditation is about going into a trance. I would argue if you're going into a trance, uh, that that is something to avoid at all costs. I would argue that proper meditation is about vigilance. It's about it's about actually uh, shutting your mind up so that you can actually be aware. Because if your mind is is doing its own thing, it's almost impossible to have any awareness. If you're going to have any actual awareness of the present moment and reality, you have to learn to shut up and use your senses and be aware. That's really what meditation is. And so proper hypnosis, in my opinion, is the same thing. And you could do it yourself. And it, all it is is meditation. It's just shutting up so that you can actually focus on, on actual things. Um, that's all. And I would argue that's what prayer is. These are just different words describing the same thing because the mind is what gets in the way. And I always go with my heart. So I found good therapists. And uh, basically what I was looking for was simply someone who, was, who wasn't going to play tricks. You could do it with someone you love. I think a lot of people, have, the, re, the best reason to seek someone else out is if it's something maybe deeply personal that people mm. that love you maybe don't want to hear. You know, like it might be traumatizing right. for someone who loves you to hear this. So a third party who isn't emotionally attached is helpful. And all it really is is talking out loud. You could probably, I'm sure you could do it all just in prayer talking to God. You know, I think it probably helps to talk out loud for some reason. If you keep things in your mind, it's a bit confusing. But if you talk out loud, it helps. So um, in my opinion, that's all therapy is, is it's working things out by talking about it and kind of sorting it out. And yeah, it, you're right. It's hard to find someone you trust. Um, and then the other thing I was looking for was someone who knew what they were talking about, someone who had experience with it, because it is a very strange thing. And there are even uh, people that doubt it even exists. You know, there's that there. That's one of the biggest problems that exists in humanity is there is a denial of evil. Uh, people don't understand how how deep it goes. You know, and um, I mean, but really, if you look at any, if you look at anything, whether it's religious scripture or myth or history, the story is is that evil rules the world. And, uh, and yeah. we're a flock of sheep that are being fleeced for thousands of years. That's one of the most um, important things that I learned from Jordan Peterson. And I don't know what your thoughts are on Jordan Peterson, but regardless, one of his messages throughout the, the lectures that I listened to and, and content that I've watched is when, you th when we think about the, 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 the Nazi time period in, in history, we often write it off as like this fluke, evil, madman situation. And it neglects the admission of the evil within each of us. Right. Yeah. And his, his big like line is you are the Nazi, right? Like yeah. you don't know what you would do if you were ordered to guard the gate or if you were ordered to turn on the gas chamber or if you were ordered to do X, Y, Z, you don't know what you would do in those situations. And so, you know, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the evil, within ourselves, not only because it's a path to avoiding hypocrisy, but because generating an accurate estimation of the threat of your own evil is, is perhaps the only way to, to prepare for, to avoid it or fight against it. And it arguably is the only thing you can actually do. You know, you can't really change another person's inner evil. I guarantee you everyone has an inner evil. That's what the ego is. I mean, you can call it a million different things, um, but ultimately, I mean, for example, I just did a report on Satanism. And if you look into Satanism, um, 
that's what Satanism is, is it's worshiping the ego. And the ego wants to do that already. The ego, you don't have to do anything for your ego to convince you that you're good and everyone else is wrong. Or maybe not everyone else, but you're going to find enemies outside of you. You're, it's very rare that a person's going to just naturally look within. It takes a lot of courage to look within. Uh, most people spend their whole lives hiding from things that are within. And that is just built into us naturally. And that's all the external enemy is doing. That's like society is just encouraging you to be more egotistical, encouraging you to be more selfish. And they don't need, we don't need much encouragement. You know, we, we need very little. And you can see it happening right now. Everyone is tribal. Everyone is joining little gangs and little tribes because within your tribe or your gang, you can all look at each other and agree we're right and everyone else is wrong. And that's exactly what the ego wants. The ego wants to, to cordon everything off and, um, and find the blame outside. So yeah, I think, honestly, and this might sound a bit utopian, but I think it's the truth. If we were, the only way the world is ever going to become more Christ-like, the only way the world is going to become a place where we actually have morality is if every individual, or at least the overwhelming majority of us, go within and sort out our own garbage and you know, and, and it's not that hard to do. It just takes courage. I mean, you can actually fight an external enemy without courage. It's no, I mean, it's built in us with the fight or flight, but um, mm -hmm. fight or flight will actually keep you from going within yourself. In, or, in order to do the inner work, you have to learn to bypass fight or flight response. You have to learn to yeah. calm down and relax. Uh, you don't need to do that to fight an external enemy. So it's really well, the it, hardest it, work. In you know, the thing that's tricky to me about it, too, is when you have an external enemy, it doesn't really require a lot of courage to fight them because you don't have a choice, right? Like, if you're getting invaded by Russia, you either fight or you die. Yeah. You know, I guess you can kind of run, but not only, you know, as, as far as the corner, right? But when you're talking about your own internal evil and ego, you can really put that off. Your, you can go your whole life having put that off. So yeah. that's where the courage comes in. You have to actually make the decision to sort of face this this dragon in the castle, so to speak. Yeah. And your mind is, I mean, uh, you could easily argue that that's all Satan is, is a Satan is a allegory for your ego because your ego, just like Satan uh, knows you better than you know yourself. Your ego is knows you in and out and all it wants to do is be in control and trick you no matter what. And if you find, you know, I believe there's also a side of us that is sort of a, connection to God. I mean, these are, this is when you ever, whenever you talk about this stuff, it can trigger people because it's language, sure. right? And you can't really, I mean, made all in his image. Of, I get it. Yeah. So it's like, uh, I would call it in myself, I would call it my higher self. And this is a very, it's a quiet witness. The only way you can get in touch with this higher self is by shutting up the ego because the ego is going to talk over it. It doesn't want you to do that. And, uh, the ego will even pretend to be that. You know, a lot of people in, for example, I've done years in different spiritual traditions studying this stuff. And the overwhelming majority of people that you meet in these traditions get to a point that people call sort of the spiritual ego, where they then now think that they are now like some enlightened being. And it's just their ego tricking them, you know, fooling them into thinking that, that, the, that, that they are now, uh, they've destroyed their ego, you know, because that's all the ego wants to do is, is run you. So it's hard. Yeah. That's all I'm saying is it's yeah. difficult. It's that it's, you need the courage because it'll, it'll, it'll mess you because it's so good at tricking you. It knows 
your weakest points and it will use those weakest points to to get you to stop looking you know or to get, to encourage you to try to find an external problem to your or you know an external enemy to your problem kind of thing so how do you how do you actually go about separating yourself from your ego because it they're so they're so intimately interwoven so how, how do you unravel it so that you can actually see your ego as something other than yourself in order to sort of uh pin it I would I do the I mean there's different there's all different kinds of methods the the method that seemed to be the most and the reason there's different methods is because we're all different and you know there's a variety of of tools that you can pick to to use what I did simply was what I found to be the best for me is is if is quieting the mind right um for a lot of people that well it's difficult for everyone for me it was in the very beginning it seemed impossible and it actually took years for me to get any headway. But that's why, for example, the, there's um, focusing on the breath, focusing on a mantra, the rosary for Catholics, it's basically the same thing. The reason you have beads is so that you can, you can sort of anchor to it, you know, so that you don't get lost in it. But the idea is to think on one thing only. It could be anything. Focus on one thing, and then eventually, once you build up the spiritual muscles to do it then that one thing becomes no thing and then you're in total nothing and then when you're there then you start to notice this other part of you um the term that i like the most because it makes the most sense to me it seems to be the most descriptive is the silent witness there is a part of you that is always there that's always present some people might refer to this as God. I, I personally don't. I think this is a part of us. Uh, but it doesn't make noise like the ego. It's not always whispering in your ear like the ego. It's not always giving you ideas and, 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 and idea, you know, that's the ego. The ego is like the computer system. The silent witness is something else. It's just constantly there and it's always witnessing. It's not expressing opinions. It's not expressing preferences. It's just witnessing everything. This is also, I think, directly related to our conscience. This is the part mm -hmm. of us that allows us to differentiate between what's right action and what's wrong action. We know, I mean, there is a universal right and wrong, and this is how you find it. And so <clears throat> the way I do it is by shutting up and observing the witness. You know, meditate on one thing until you kind of quiet the mind. Once you're in that quietude, then just observe this, this silent witness. And then by doing that, then you realize that the ego isn't you. The I think the best description, like you mentioned the computer analogy, that's a great analogy. The, the ego, it's not a bad thing. The problem with it is that we, it's, it needs to be managed. It needs to be right. kept on a leash. Totally. Like a dog, if you don't train your dog, your dog is going to become neurotic and it's going to run you crazy. Whereas if you train your dog, your dog will be super happy and you can live at peace with it. Same thing with the ego. If you train your ego and you get under, under control and you recognize that that's not you, and you recognize that it does try to play tricks on you, uh, and, you and then you just keep it under control, and then you, then you realize that's not you. That, I mean, who, who am I is a question that everyone, I think, should ask. It's a very profound question to ask. And um, in the end, I don't even really know who I am. I, I believe, you know, words, like I said, fail to describe these things. The spiritual things are are things that you can, you can almost say are almost impossible to really put into words and describe it as humans in physical form. But the best way I could describe it is I would say I am a soul 
and I am incarnate. I am a soul that is incarnating a human body. I am not a human. I am living a life as a human. And so therefore I am subjected to human qualities like a human mind and a human. And I believe the ego is part of the body. It's part because we need the ego, you know, for some things you need it. Like if even simple things like math, if you're figuring out math problems, you're going to need to, I mean, the, the mind, the mind is that mental part of you that can think and problem solve and all stuff. That's the ego. So when you need it, it's your best friend. When you don't need it, you need to shut it off and, and focus on your heart. You know, because that's where we connect to God and God is everything, in my opinion. When you talk about the silent witness, I think that's really interesting. I never, I never had thought of this in that sort of framework. It reminds me of um, the Fellowship of the Ring. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan or not, but do you remember um, when they're in the, uh, the pub in the first one and it's when they meet Aragorn for the first time, but he's just Strider and he's in the corner and he's got his pipe and he's wearing the hood. And he's just sort of watching the hobbits while they're drinking. And they like notice that he's watching, but not saying anything. And so the reason I bring that up is because do you think that this sort of silent witness that we're all aware of within ourselves, that's a separate entity from our conscience, but sort of observing all of our actions, do you think that it's related at all to our, our, our sense of self-esteem uh, like if you have a, if you have a guilty conscience and, and someone's watching you, you're, you're almost like intimately aware okay. of what you're doing wrong. Right. Yes. Right. It's so when how I was is it linked kid, to self-esteem? <clears throat> when I was a kid, um, I thought, I always thought I was being watched, um, to the point where I didn't tell people that because I was worried that people would think I was crazy. Right. I mean, I would, um, you know, say, uh, hanging out in my room and more, you know, maybe feeling guilty about something because I, and I, and I just assumed I was being watched. And in a way it was kind of cool because, um, it got me, uh, like, I don't care about, I mean, I care, I, I don't, I care about, you know, government is slavery and I completely am against, you know, overreach and spying on citizens and all that stuff. So I'm not saying I don't care about it, but I don't care about it in the sense of, you know, I don't have anything to hide. And it's like, I just assume I'm being watched all the time, but that's a whole other subject. But but yeah, I think when I was a kid, I was, I, it, it felt like it was paranoia to me. But when I got older and started recognizing this silent witness inside of me, I think that's all I was noticing is that, because uh, I was a very mischievous kid and I got in a lot of trouble. And I, I remember like the first time I, I lied, it seemed like I discovered a magical power. So I was actually quite into um, wrong action to a certain extent. Um, I, I wasn't into hurting people, but you know, I, what could you I was into, uh, kind of I was into doing what I wanted to do. And so in order to do that, I had to lie to my parents, for example, I had to learn how to sneak out and sneak in and stuff like that. So I was into that, but <clears throat> as I got older and, and I realized that that's what I was conflicted with is that there was this, there was this inner witness. It wasn't saying anything. It wasn't like scolding me, <clears throat> but it was observing me and it was, and I could feel that's why I think it is related to the conscience because I could always feel from it a sense of, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I wouldn't even say disapproval. It was just, a, I think the disapproval came from somewhere else in me, but I knew that I was, I wasn't getting away with anything. I knew that, uh, I wasn't really fooling anyone, you know? Right. It's almost like, um, like the, the best version of yourself is, is sort of operating the Socratic method on you. Right. So if you can imagine, like if I can imagine perfect chase, right? Ideal chase. I've reached self-actualization. I am operating at 
100% peak efficiency as a moral human being, as a productive human being, all these ideals. If I can imagine that entity and then just imagine that perfect chase can't communicate with me, but can only look at me. <laughs> right. And so every time I make a decision, I'm like kind of trying to get like a, a little feedback from perfect chase and can't say anything to me, but it forces this Socratic method. Like, is this really what you want to do? Is this yeah. really what you, and it can kind of like weasel you into a better life. If you actually sort of pay attention to pay attention to how the ideal version of yourself would, would judge, you know, the, the reality of yourself. Yeah. And I think that this, the, this quiet part, that I'm calling the witness. It's just a word. I think that this part of us wants us to be the perfect, the ideal version of ourselves. I think that's the whole purpose of life is, you know, we're born innocent and then invariably it seems we lose our innocence, we suffer, and then we either do this personal work we're talking about and overcome that suffering and then become your you know, the, the person that you were born to be that God intent, you know, you, you find your path. And in my opinion, the, 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 I, I certainly haven't reached it, but in my opinion, the goal to me, if I was to describe it, I would say is to sort of become an instrument of God, you know, to become to the point where, cause you know, I think we all have moments of being an instrument of God. You know, when people say you're in the zone, I think that's a place where, mm -hmm. where you lose your own, mind and you're allowing God to play you like an instrument. You become a tool of God, <clears throat> for lack of a better word. So I think many of us musicians certainly experience this, or good musicians at least, or decent musicians, you know, um, also sport, I'm sure athletes and stuff. So I think that is, that's the goal. And, uh, and to get there, it's just about cleaning up all the inner garbage. Another great, I mean, if people are listening to this and they're interested in doing it, one of the best ways to do it we're everyone knows what the word triggered means right now. And mm -hmm. most everyone gets triggered every now and then that's one of the best ways to start cleaning up your garbage is if you get triggered by something, if you can, because what happens when you get triggered, what's happening is a mental cue is actually stimulating the chemicals in your body that release an emotion. And that emotion is what we call a trigger. That's the trigger. If you can witness this while it's happening, you know, just quietly witness what's happening, figure out why you were triggered. Just by learning the trigger and learning why you were triggered and observing it and, and meditating or praying on it, it seems almost like that process alone will wash it away from you and clear it up so that it no longer, that thing no longer triggers you anymore. It's just kind of like trauma. And everyone's been traumatized. I mean, there's, I don't think anyone gets through this experience without some type of trauma. And these traumas, create these triggers and these triggers make it so that we're like literally out of control of ourselves. And so um, if you get triggered, one of the best things you can do is, is slow down and look at it and, and ask yourself, why did I get triggered? Yeah. If you, a lot of times relationship, a lot of times we get in relationships with people that trigger us and um, they might not be that fun, but they're an excellent opportunity to do this kind of work to like figure out why we're so crazy. <laughs> Yeah. I, and I found too that oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes when I'm experiencing some sort of m mild modicum of being triggered, it's usually because there's something wrong with my position. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, like if I see, uh, a tweet that is 
counter what I believe about capitalism, for example. Oftentimes, I find that I'm triggered until I am able to run through the exercise of actually making a coherent argument as to why whatever is triggering me is wrong. And as soon as I sort of am able to unravel that puzzle, then I'm not even triggered by like the fact that I disagree with the content anymore. Right. And so that's one thing I've noticed as I've grown on Twitter over the last year and a half since I started doing this podcast is, you know, I get a lot of hate now and, uh, I like it because I'm like, ah, I'm making these people do work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, because really the goal is like, it's not about who's right or who's wrong. It's, it's, about, sure. it's about right action. It's about um, natural law. It's about learning to be a good person. And really all that means is do not... One of the best teachers on this subject, um, in my opinion, is Mark Passio. And the way he puts it is, thou shalt not steal. Do not steal. And that includes everything. Don't, like, killing someone else is stealing their life. Uh, raping mm. someone is stealing... Um, they're, you know, sex from them, uh, stealing from them is stealing from them. Coercion is stealing. Uh, you leave people like Christ's golden rule. You live and you let live. That is the natural law. This is why, you know, it's a disputed quote as to whether it's real or not, but it definitely makes sense. The, the, uh, the letter that Benjamin Fra- Franklin wrote that said, uh, you have a republic if you can keep it. Mm. We lost our republic years ago. And the reason we lost it and the reason why he said that is because a republic only works with a moral people. A republic only works when individuals are capable of policing their own behavior and not treading on their neighbors. Once we start losing our morality, which we have a long time ago, then you need a government to enslave you because you've proven yourself to be a criminal. You've proven yourself to be an immoral person. And, 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 you know, we all like to say, well, not me, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an immoral person, but that's where you got to start looking at yourself and checking yourself and being like, am I really? And then you got to look at what do you want to do externally? Um, cause if you don't really want to do the work to try to help your brothers and sisters in the world to become moral people, all you want to do is gain power and put your ideas in place. Then really all you're doing is you're trying to be one of the prison guards. You're fighting to be tight with the prison guards so that you can run the prison. You know, I want to run the prison. I mean, and that there's really nothing righteous about that. I mean, I understand right now the way they do it is by dividing and conquering us, right? They put us in these tribes and they, 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 they take the most mentally ill and they weaponize them. And then they, um, they make them our enemy when really our, our enemy is this hidden hand that is very easily manipulating us into being immoral beings. And, uh, yeah. Well, and it seems to me too that one of the main, main things we lost is not only morality, but a consensus as to whether or not morality itself exists. Right. Right. The people can't even agree as to whether or not there is a right and wrong, you know, regardless of arguing about what is right and wrong. Yeah. And, and my question for you, just, you mentioned, you know, the Republic, if you can keep it is at what point do you think we cross the threshold of losing it? In our history, not n- n- there's no one alive today that has known a republic. That's for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, uh, like, that's a good question. I mean, maybe like the Federal Reserve. I don't know, man. Oh, I think it goes back further than that. I mean, and then really, once you get into, I've been doing some uh, videos on the side 
for Rockfin that I'm very interested in. And the reason I'm doing them on this, one of the reasons I'm doing them on the side is because they're very strange and there's no answers. A lot of the videos I do for InfoWars, I believe there are simple answers that you can find if you look into them. Right. There are subjects when you go far back enough in history where it's a bit of a mystery. For example, um, if, you, if you look into the Moorish presence in Florida, there seems to have been a Some royal class. <laughs> there seems to be evidence, pretty strong evidence, that there was a um, a civilized royal, like Moor, Moors, Moorish, black people that were highly advanced and uh, royalty class um, that came from what, what we now know as Spain. And a mm. lot of this seems very right. well documented. There's actually buildings still in Florida that appear to be from this time. And then you look into the amount of black Freemasons that existed um, during the time of slavery. There were actual black only Freemason groups. I mean, little tidbits like this kind of make you scratch your head and, and start wondering, like, I mean, do we, how much of our history? I mean, it's like you can't trust uh, the news. We're watching the story get rewritten in real time every day. The more we pay attention to it, the more we realize that just about everything we're being told is a lie. But yet, for some reason, we are just so certain and sure that we know exactly what our history is. So, so what are your thoughts on, on Freemasonry? And full disclosure, I, I am a Freemason, um, and I'd be interested to hear what you think on that. I believe, I talked to um, Leo Zagami, interviewed me a mm, few years yeah, ago. Yeah, I've heard of him. Harrison told me about him. And he's a, he's a Freemason, or he left his, he left his Masonic um, lodge because he believed it was... Uh, taken over by Satanism. Hmm. He believes, and there is strong evidence that there's a Christian background. Um, I have no problem with it. Well, I, the reason I brought him up was because after talking to me, he said, in his words, he said that um, he asked me if I was a member of Freemasonry or anything. And, and when I told him no, then he said, oh, you're just self-initiated. And I would agree with that because I, I, I've been studying the occult and hidden knowledge sure. forever. They gave Manly P. Hall the 33rd degree honorary. He never did any of the Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. They just bestowed it on him because he, he discovered the secrets of masonry on its own. Yeah, I mean, I'm not only am I obsessed with it, but uh, it's interesting. In every astrological reading I've ever had, it even says that I am obsessed. You know, it knows that I'm into the occult. So uh, um, what I think about Freemasonry is this. I think that if you want to be a moral people, if you want to be... A, um, if you want to do what I'm talking about and encourage natural law, because there's a reason it's called natural law is because it is a law of nature. If the right. majority of the population is immoral, then we will have a government. Government is slavery uh, because government, you cannot, um, if we don't have the right to coerce other people, then how can we grant our government the right to coerce people? Right. Any way you look at it logically, government is slavery. And so if you actually want to have a moral people, you can't rely on the government to do it. You can't because that's, that doesn't make any sense. The only way it really makes sense is to band together with other men or men and women in your community and uh, other people striving to, to do the right thing and work together to do that. And that's really, when you look at Freemasonry, I mean, that is a lot of people say that's the cover story, you know, that they're, um, they're sure. charitable, but I don't think it is the cover story. I think that is the real story. It's just been subverted and infiltrated just like every single organization on the planet. Every organization has been infiltrated because that's the nature of evil. So 
Yeah, I definitely see. Um, another thing I heard recently was that we're living not in the apocalypse. You know, the apocalypse means the, the revealing of the hidden or the lifting of the veil. We're not in the apocalypse. We're in the post-apocalypse because this knowledge, you mentioned Manly P. Hall, this knowledge has been public knowledge for a long time. You know, the apocalypse already happened. We're in the post-apocalypse. Post-apocalypse is where we show what we're going to do with the knowledge. We're either going to use right. this knowledge to become moral beings and to help our brothers and sisters become moral beings, to love, to, to be the good shepherd, or we're going to become a bunch of belligerent, um, immoral beings and therefore get the government that we deserve. It's interesting so, that you framed it like that because, you know, if you think of an apocalypse as the revealing and then the post-apocalypse is the what do you do with the knowledge or wisdom that you have or the enlightenment, then technically the, 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 the one of the first stories in the Bible of the fall of mankind is a story of an apocalypse, right? Because there's this revealing of the knowledge of good and evil and then everything that happens after that is what are you going to do about it? Like yeah. now that you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of like the human condition, right? It's just, yeah. what do you do with what you know? <laughs> there are a lot of um, people that that use that story that you just said and seem to think that that means you're supposed to stay ignorant of the knowledge right. or something. Uh, if, I, in my opinion, then that's Ignorance just a, isn't a choice, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, once you fall, you can't go back. Exactly. Right. That's what you're seeing in the... Our fallen brothers and sisters, the you know whatever you want to call them, the the nor the brainwashed sheep, you know whatever name. I mean, I'm guilty of, I'm guilty of of being angry at these people myself, but that's not the right thing to do because these people are just um, they're lost and they're scared. Uh, but that's what they're doing is they are just um, rather than taking the responsibility. Okay, so I guess to be fair, uh, it is okay to be a little stern with them because they, they, people really do need to grow up and be mature and face the demons. And if you don't, if you remain, if you willfully remain ignorant, then good luck to you. I mean, that's, you're just, uh, you're just, you're just being a happy slave and there's no real, there's really no such thing as a happy slave. You're being a willing slave, I guess. Yeah. Well, and some people seem to choose slavery over freedom because there's comfort and at least the lie of safety, right? So, um, you know, if you look at slavery in the United States, you had roof over your head, all the food that you needed, you know, if you were injured, there was going to be care for you. And, and yeah. at least most cases, right. Cause you're, you're a valuable property, but you had no freedom, right? So all, all of the joy and spirit of life was sort of robbed from you, but there's comfort in the slavery. It also reminds me of the movie, uh, Shawshank Redemption, right? When red was institutionalized and Morgan Freeman's character, uh, um, you know, struggled with that after he got out of prison. He's like, what do I do? Like he was, he had, he'd gotten so comfortable with being institutionalized that it was difficult for him to thrive in an environment where there was freedom and there was any number of possibilities or choices that he could make or decisions that he could, that he could make or paths that he could go down. And so, um, you know, I, my concern for our culture is that we're being institutionalized where people choose to wear, yeah. people seem to enjoy the mask. And they seem yeah. to enjoy the, the vaccines and these rules. And like, I just, it just seems so un-American to me. I would agree. I would agree completely. I talked to a, um, a Chinese girl a few years ago um, from China online. I was talking to her. For all I know, it was a Chinese spy, but I don't think so. I think it was a legitimate person. But um, I was 
asking her about Hong Kong because I recently got back from Hong Kong covering the protests and I was very inspired by the whole thing. And she referred to them as terrorists and um, protesters, the protesters. And um, when I pursued the conversation, she basically said, yeah, life is fine until these protests, until these terrorists are They're Like basically she was saying that they're rocking the boat and they're making life hard for everyone. And before them, life was like you said, there was a comfort. There was a certain comfort level that was disrupted by people uh, protesting the government because the government then started cracking down and taking it out on everyone and people started losing what little freedoms they had. And as soon as she said that, I kind of, I never thought of that because I'm, I was, like I said, I grew up from a young age always being um, religiously rebellious. You know, like I was a zealot when it came to right. individual. It was freedom. your duty to break rules. <laughs> yes. It was my duty. Individual free, individuality was always the most important thing to me. It still is. So I never even thought of that, but when I heard the way she put it, she just put it so clearly where I was like, Oh, I get it. And that's kind of what's happening here in America. The same thing. It's, it's this, it's even, it's, it's bizarre here. Like you, you mentioned the mask. That is a whole other level that I don't, I don't understand that completely. I've been getting some updates from Washington DC on the proud boys trial. And for example, today mm -hmm. was the first day where there were no potential jurors in the building at all. Like they're, they're done with jury selection. So this is the first day there was no jurors. It was also the first day that the prosecutors didn't wear their masks. And so that tells you everything. And from what I've heard from the reporter I, who's giving me updates there, the, all the jurors are wearing masks and the prosecutors had masks on throughout the entire jury selection. And that tells you that there is some, it's some kind of cue. It's almost like they only they're only going to trust someone who's wearing a mask, you know, like it is a, it's it's become part of well, the and mind you can kind control. of determine someone's political persuasion based on whether they're wearing a mask or not. Like yeah, you the see somebody in a mask, they either got AIDS or they're a leftist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I mean, even and, and what's a leftist? Because it's not even I mean, the majority of these people don't even understand politics or they don't even they're just TV watchers. They're pop culture. Um, their church. Their politics is pop culture. That's what I, I don't. Right. I don't really buy the fact that these people are liberals or leftists. Um, I grew up with liberals, and uh, well, I, think most I, I distinguish leftists from Democrats. Sure. You know, I don't think a 1990s. I don't think a, a, a 1996 Bill Clinton is the same thing as a leftist in 2023. I don't even think AOC is a leftist. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't think she's smart enough to play <laughs> to play the to to put on an act like that. I think she's hmm. just. Her ego is so she's a Satanist in the sense that her she's operating completely on ego. Um, and so she's completely lost and blinded by her ego. And she is probably also um, rather stupid. And she just wanted to be famous. I mean, we know that they auditioned her like they, uh, you know, I think it was Cenk Jungar who helped run the auditions. And they 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 hired a bunch of actors, basically. And she won. So she just wants to be famous, and um, I don't think she, I don't I don't think she's a leftist. She just does what she's told, you know. Like, and that's what most of these people do. They they're told. Harrison Smith was talking about it this morning. How uh, there is no logic. They they give them talking points and they repeat them. And I think it has nothing to do with politics. It's about comfort. It's like what you were saying. It's comfort because everyone is becoming statists. I think that's a better way of putting it than leftists. They're statists. They're going to go. Their religion is the state is the government. 
And I think this is a result of not having God in your life. When, you, when your ego is out of control, you have no connection to God. Your ego wants to be God. Your ego is trying to constantly convince you to be God. And if you have no God, I think we need God. I was lucky enough to where I feel like I came into, I remember coming into this world with God. I've had God in my life my whole life. I assumed everyone did. It took me a while to figure out that not everyone does. And that's very strange to me. But, but if you don't have God, I can completely see how you're, you're just a sucker waiting to be bought into some other church because I think right. it's built in. You either have us. God or an, or an idol. Or right. an idol, right. Exactly. But you don't have neither. You have one of the You don't other. have neither. No. E like atheists. Atheists might claim to not have a God. They're lying. Tell me you've ever met an atheist who isn't a statist. They all right. worship the state. They all worship right. Neil deGrasse Tyson or whatever state spokesman is brought out and tells you. They all worship the science. And these are all just other words for, you know, the almighty government. I've got an AOC question for you. Do you remember when... Um, um, uh, Tel Aviv was experiencing that bomb, all those those bombings in the Iron Dome, and then there was all all that viral footage of the Iron Dome protecting Israel. And um, I think that there was a there was a bill that came to the floor that was regarding whether or not we were going to um, increase our funding to help Israel in terms of uh, Iron Dome tech while this was going on. And do you remember that AOC went to vote and she cried and I think she abstained from the vote. She she entered a no vote or or an abstention. Do you know what I'm talking about? Vaguely. Yeah. I I, well, the reason I mentioned it is because I could never figure out why she cried. Oh, I, I she can cry on cue. I'm sure. You I mean, so? she's a, she's a, that's who she is. She's um. what, I mean, what's an actor other than, I mean, everyone acts like when you, I mean, is, have you ever seen a little kid or that doesn't act? That's what kids do. Kids uh, to play. They, they pick parts and characters and they're okay. You be this and you be that. And, and then they act and they play act. I'm not impressed with actors because everyone does it. All it is is lying or pretending. And some people are good at it. And I think that's all she is. And she probably was, a, she probably spent her whole life wanting to be, you know, a Hollywood actress. You know, I mean, I'm sure she did. And instead she got auditioned for this role she's in. So yeah, she, she cries when she's told to cry. It's like the same thing with the border when she was down there posing pictures for that. Yeah, um, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting. It really is. Uh, and what's so disgusting, I, like I said, I really don't think she's aware at all of how disgusting it is. I'm sure because her ego is so in charge, she's a perfect example of, of complete ego. That all she cares about is the attention. All she cares about is the... I, I dated a, a, an actress, an aspiring, who wanted to be a famous actress. And Meryl she was Street. beautiful but she was the most shallow person I've ever met in my life. And I remember superficial. totally superficial. I remember um, asking her once, like, why do you want to be an actor? You know, cause I've never had a lot of respect for it. Even as a filmmaker, as a, one of my, um, well, I won't get into it, but um, I asked her, why do you want to be an actress? You know, like, like, and her answer was uh, because I want to make the world a better place. Okay. Well, how are you going to make the world a better place? Well, by being a good example to other people. Have you ever heard anything so insane? You know, Total insanity. Right. That's basically it's saying if the world right was more wrong. like me, then the world then, then the world would be a better place. That's what yeah. she said. If the world yeah. was more like me, then or, the world would be a better place. I think more accurately what she's saying, if the world looked up to me, as long as everyone's right. looking up to me, then there'll be good people. <sighs> Man, I hope and I that, never fall into the trap. That's AOC. Yeah, I met and, wow. and I and I, I I was with her for a few months. So I, I realized that this is a real person, you know, and so that's yeah. I, that's what I see when I see AOC.
I mean, that's and that's specifically AOC. If we were to get on Ilhan Omar, I would say she's a a victim of uh, trauma abuse. You know, sure. But so when you broke a, up with this girlfriend, did she throw lamps? She sounds like a lamp thrower. Actually, she was. Um, no, she kept her cool. Uh, she, she was cool. Uh, yeah. Nice. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So I've had so more drama than her. How did you? Um, how did you get connected with with Infowars? Were you doing your own content? Uh, up until 2017 and they just found you or what happened? That's a good question too. Uh, th this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, so, okay. So I started off the interview talking about my whole life story, basically um, yeah. how it was, uh, um, it took me years, years and years to find peace. I From eyes wide shut to eyes wide open, baby. <laughs> I finally, fi I finally had eyes wide open in 2017. 2017 was <coughs> when I first and finally, I was able to let go of my past and I've been basically um, present in the moment and, and able to focus and be present since 2017. And, it, and I cannot understate how great that is. It's incredible. It's, uh, it's incredible. So what, what happened in 2017 then was um, I, I never believed in the two-party system. I always saw how the two-party system was just a scam, part of the prison system. But Trump... I feel differently now. I'm not. A, I, I consider Trump as bad as the rest of them. But uh, but at the time, I was convinced that he was different. He convinced me of the populist movement. Everything he was saying. He might have been at the time. People. He might have been it. at the time. I agree. Um, when I, I didn't think he had any hope. Like I, I kind of believed in him, but I was like, good luck. Um, mm. But when I saw the Marines bombing poppy fields in 2018, that's what got me to look at it deeper because to me that's deep state money and well for whatever reason that just clicked in my head i was like okay there's an actual fight going on now um this is a fight that i am totally for because i do like i said i'm not a, i'm not a proponent of government but <laughs> you know me. you got to make baby steps you got to get there somehow and you can at least start cleaning up your government and and calling out injustices so i thought that was happening in 2017 or 2018 is actually uh end of 2017 beginning of 2018 is when i no it was 17 when they were bombing the poppy fields that's right so what i did and i happened in 2017 i also bought bitcoin for this t for the first time i bought it at 1200 and then by the end of the year it was up to 19,000. and so i had the money to to change my life at the time i was in an ashram i was at a yoga ashram i was living alone in a temple for three years focusing on all the spiritual work and stuff like that. Uh, 2017 comes, I realize there's a fight going on. I believe there's a fight going on and I still do believe that there was a fight, that it was a legit fight. And so I wanted in, that's all I knew is I wanted in and I didn't know how I was going to get in. I mean, I've been making these videos since I was a, literally since I was, I think nine, I've been making little videos, little mini documentaries, kind of the same kind of thing I'm doing now. It's always been my passion, but I have a lot of self-doubt and insecurity, especially back then. So I never thought I'd be doing that. I never thought mm. ever I'd be doing that. I just wanted to do something. I didn't care if I was sweeping the floor somewhere. I just wanted to get involved. And so what I did was I took my Bitcoin or I sold one whole Bitcoin. So I had about $19,000. Crazy. So, so Bitcoin so crazy. How, you know, anyways. Mm -hmm. And I uh, went to Hawaii. And because I've been to Hawaii before. I, li I lived there briefly before. Hawaii is a magical place. Anyone who's yeah. been to Hawaii knows it. Um, and I believe, uh, I mean, I, I could have done it anywhere, but you know, why not go to Hawaii? So I went to Hawaii and I rented a nice three bedroom house in Volcano and 
two weeks after I moved in, the volcano erupted, which was just two miles from my uh, house that I was renting on the golf course there. And then um, right after that, InfoWars announced a contest for like a reporter contest. And I never thought I'd, and I didn't win the reporter contest, but I never thought I would get in as a reporter, but they, they said they need editors. That's mm. something that I did have confidence in. I knew that I know I can edit. So I knew I can get that job in my past. If I want a job, I can get a job. I have, um, uh, persistence. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I started submitting videos and I was also making my own videos. I called it the red pill. It was super cheesy. I had a suit. Well, the, the video show was okay, but I had a super cheesy intro. I was following Q at the time. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, I caught the very first Q post and I wasn't following even, with zeal or curiosity with zeal up until COVID. I, um, I made a Q video right after COVID happened, slamming Q because when COVID happened, I realized that Q was, a, a psyop uh and, uh, and I'm do you think the whole certain. time he was or do you think that when they switched from 4chan to 8chan that's when it's well now i don't know because it it got me into the fight you know mm -hmm. what i'm saying so that's why i can't say for certain like maybe i was just a fluke you know right but it got me into the fight because it was two things it was trump and it was q that got that said okay i'm in sign me up so i a lot of the news I was covering, I was covering Drudge Report, Infowars, and Q, basically. And I was doing it five days a week. No one was watching. I was just doing it on my YouTube channel. Part of the magic. It's part of manifestation, right? So I'm out. I'm in right. Hawaii. I want to manifest myself into the fight somehow. And I'm doing it by using magic. I'm doing it by, you know, by thinking about it. I'm doing it by, you know, giving thanks to God and expressing a joy and love and gratitude in my heart for, for God. And I'm doing it through action. I'm doing it by actually getting involved and making videos. So if anyone wants to manifest anything similar, that's how you do it. Through your mind, through your heart, and through your actions. So I'm doing this in Hawaii. The volcano erupts. Um, I'm submitting videos. And then uh, I have a water system in my, at the house I was renting. So I was drinking the rainwater. The volcano crapped all over it. So I know I'm drinking volcanic stuff. So I, I'm running it through my... Infowars filter, water filter. And uh, so I said, oh, I can, I wanted to test it and see if the, if I'm actually drinking clean water. So I bought some tests and I said, well, since I'm not in this Infowars contest, I'll make an ad. So I um, tested the water. Turns out uh, before I ran it through my filter, it definitely was loaded with nastiness. And then after I tested it after, it was like 99.9% .9 pure. So I was like, sweet, made a video submitted that and that got me a call from rob do once i submitted that ad rob do called me and said because he needed permission to run the ad he's like hey we'd like to run right. that ad can we run it and that was it once i had rob do's phone number i pretty much gave up on trying to win the contest and i just packed my things and i moved to texas and i um as soon as i got to texas i uh called rob up and i you know i did this all very it was all very thought out. I, want, I wanted to put him on the spot. And I called him up and I said, hey, Rob, do you remember me? I did the ad. I, well, I moved to Texas and I'd love a job. And so he met me for lunch the next day and hired me. And when he hired me, I wasn't even, I mean, I was hired to do like three different things to help edit. At the time, Jones was doing a lot of podcasting from a small studio. So I was going to help him uh, during the nights with that. So when I first started, I was with Jones. It was just me and Jones 
for uh, almost every night of the week. And this was two weeks after I got hired. Before I got my first paycheck was when we got deleted off of all the platforms. Oh, and then I just man. started doing reports. Um, I started doing reports right away just because I just was hustling. I just wanted to kick ass and, uh, and, and fight for individual freedom. And then um, I remember the after my second report or something, I was having a hard time finding uh, a space to do video because at first I was going on camera like most people do. And, and, mm. and uh, Rob Dew said, uh, why don't you just do a voiceover? And, um, and I was like, I can do that. And he was like, yeah. So, uh, he's like, it's more editing, but go for it. And then right. Just once, find once B-roll. I, yeah, once I did that, I never went back once I, once I, I, uh, and I'm glad I, I, I love what I do. I've never been happier. I've never had a more meaningful life than I've had in the past four or five years. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to, to deal with a bit because of so many people have been struggling in the past few years and I've been living my best life. I mean, in a way, I mean, I feel like I was born, born to do what I'm doing right now. And that's yeah. an incredible feeling of talk about gratitude. There's nothing you could have more powerful in this life than gratitude towards God to give thanks to God on a regular basis is going to fill your life with grace. It's just the way it works. And the way my life has been in the past few years, it's effortless. It's literally almost every day. I'm just constantly, you know, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So before we wrap up, I have to ask, what was it like living next to an erupting volcano and then coming to Texas and basically immediately working extended hours after hours directly with Alex Jones? I've actually never met him. I've hosted American Journal six times and never met the guy. It was awesome. It was um, the active volcano was interesting because uh, like I rode my bike there when I first moved in. And um, I remember when I I remember I like fell off my bike almost and stumbled towards it because it was so incredibly beautiful. I mean, wow. you can go online and look it up and it's like, man, but when you're there in person, you're just like, wow. Right. And my first thought was first, my my first thought was like, wow. And then that was followed by. I bet this thing's going to blow up right now. And that's just, um, that's not because I'm a psychic. That's just because I have a, that's a whole other story, but that's kind of my life story. If uh, like I tend to show up kind of uh, for, for drama. So, um, and sure enough, it did just a couple weeks later, it blew up. I actually did a video report of uh, the volcano that, <laughs> that didn't get really any play during the contest. And I thought, I thought this was going to get me the job uh, because I was brave and I actually, I got a pass to get into the no-go zone because a friend of mine had a house there. So they gave me the National Guard pass so I could get past the National Guard. And then I snuck past, uh, I was totally breaking the law, but I, I was walking through um, fresh- You Bohemian groved it? <laughs> I was walking through like fresh lava that was like two, three feet deep, you know? Ooh. And um, not, you know, like, uh, like, like black soot. Tony and Robbins got, is like, you can do it. You can do it. Right. And I got really close. I got too close. I got so close that you could, I, I actually, when I was packing up the camera to leave, my foot fell through the, and, and smoke started spraying up. And that oh, freaked no. me out. You're and lucky you have your foot. I am lucky. And the scariest part of it is I just wanted to keep going closer. And I bet you anyone who's gone close to a volcano can relate. There is, it's mesmerizing. And there's a part in your head that says, just, just go closer. Just go right up to it, you know, because it's it's. They're, they're, the silent, they're silent witness is just like, 
<laughs> uh, working for Alex is, um, you know, I've been a fan of the show since 2004. Uh, I consider Alex Jones one of my gurus. Uh, in 2004, Alex Jones and David Icke combined taught me everything I know today, basically, on the subject. Uh, within one year of studying those two guys, I think I pretty much got the whole story that, you know, I... I, everything we're learning, everything a lot of people are learning now, I learned back in one year from those two guys. So I have a lot of love for both of them. Uh, meeting Alex, and, and, and having said that, I, like I said, I don't trust anyone. So I walked sure. into the studio. I was like, I don't know, maybe Alex is controlled opposition. You know, what do I know? I mean, you know, so I walked in there with a very open mind to all that. And um, what I experienced was he's exactly what you would think he's like. I mean, he's, the guy on air is the guy you meet in person. Um, He's one of the most unique people I've ever met in my life, and I have a soft spot for that. Uh, I definitely appreciate sort of unique individuals. I honestly, what my take is, is if you're, if you're being a, your genuine self, then you're going to be weird, you know? Because yeah. I think deep, when we take our masks off, we're all a bit funny and weird. Um, Alex, the other thing I noticed was uh, he's, he's intense, uh, anyone at the studio will agree with that. I mean, um, he right. he's an intense guy, so you have to have thick skin, and uh, you have to hustle, and you have to respond right. and work right. quick. He expects a lot. And these the days I started, like I said, uh, before I got my first paycheck, we were taken off of of all the networks. <clears throat> On one hand, he was he was loving it. Like if you want if you want to see a happy Alex, um, fight him. Like uh, there's a line in Full Metal Jacket about Animal, the character Animal. Uh, you know, Animal's a great guy uh, so long as, you know, people are throwing hand grenades at him or something like that. Right, um, right. And that's kind of Alex. If you, it, when Alex is surrounded by people kissing his ass and telling him how great he is, eventually you're going to see him get very kind of uncomfortable and angry almost. He, 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 and I kind of understand that too. It's, uh, you know, I don't think anyone, I think it's good. I don't, I think it's a healthy thing to be annoyed by people kissing your ass, you know? Uh, but if you want to see him like the little kid in him come out, then, um, you know, start spitting in his face, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and well, and that's how you know you're doing out. something right. Right. Like that's how it must be gratifying for someone like him. Who's been fighting for freedom of speech and just freedom in general for so many decades. It must be gratifying when these entities that you've, accurately identified as being incredibly problematic try like officially announce that you are you know public enemy number one by censoring yeah. you it's like all right now i really i must be really fucking with them you know yeah and i think that that weighed on him heavy too because uh at, at first it was great like back in 2018 yeah he was on fire but uh through the trials obviously that that i mean i yeah, think anyone who watches taxing. the show can tell that that was pretty taxing on him the other thing i noticed about him when i first started working for him is um he kept his distance for the first couple of weeks uh but then once once he then he kind of warmed up but then when he warms up he just treats you it's it's a big family there um i love being in florida but i love the three years i was there it's it's a group of really cool people uh, from all different backgrounds, the one commonality is people are kind of going after the truth and people just want to see the world a better place. But outside of that, everyone's different. And he listens to you. Like I remember he came by my cubicle where I was when I first started and he was actually talking to someone else. And the subject of um, ayahuasca came up and mm -hmm. 
And that was the first conversation I ever had with him because I had an ayahuasca experience. And I said, I said, oh, I did ayahuasca. And then Jones was all ears and all eyes. And I told him my story and he was just engrossed, listening, hanging on every word. And then it was the very next day, I think, on the show, he told my story. He was like somehow brought up ayahuasca and, um, and says, I got a friend who had his experience and blah, blah, blah. And he just like told my story on the air, you know, and that's like, um, that just gave me the impression of, uh, of the place that I work. And that turns that, that that's how that place is. It's a, what I've learned being in this business is Infowars. And, you know, I don't expect anyone to believe me, but in my experience, it's a, it's an extremely rare place. There is no agenda there. I, when I was, okay, so I was hired to do a bunch of different things, but reports was, was one of them. And Rob Dew said, as far as the lesson I was, as far as the rules I was given for reports, it was basically pick a subject you think is important, do your best to tell the truth. And then here's the password and the login for the YouTube channel. And then yeah. I said, well, do I need to show this to anyone first? Do I need to get approval or something? You're your own editor. And Rob just gave me this annoyed look and was like, we don't have time for that. <laughs> you know? right. So literally I do whatever I want to do and I upload it and that's it. You know, and I never really hear back. I never hear anything about it. I just, uh, I, I hear good report or I don't hear anything. Yeah. But, um, that's it. And that, that's, that's been my experience too. guest hosting there. I just show up Yeah. and you know, I'm like, what do you want me to talk about? And they're like, just do your thing. And I'm not going to name names. I'm not here to talk smack or anything, but, um, almost every other, you know, quote unquote, alternative media place that I know of is not like that. I have friends that work at other places and I've been told that there are rules. You're not allowed to talk about this. You're not allowed to talk about that. And I don't even think I have to say that. I think most people can tell that, uh, um, some places just aren't allowed to talk about everything where, and so it, I, like I said, I just could not be happier with where I work because, um, we're allowed to say whatever we want. So where can people find you, follow you, see your content, that sort of thing? If you go to reesreport.com, that'll have all the links. I do a Sunday podcast uh, every week for paid subscribers. And then about once a month, I'll put one out for everyone. Uh, that's where you can hear the details of the Jesuit story. I just did that last Sunday. And then I'm starting a, um, a Rockfin channel that I've been doing. I already have two videos up there now. And that's all behind a paywall. And that is a place where I'm doing videos on subjects like I said, that are, I find them to be very interesting subjects. Uh, but because they're somewhat mysterious, they don't have a lot of answers. For example, the most recent one I did there was I cover the world fairs. Uh, anyone who's ever looked into the world fairs, the official story from like 1850 to 1910, they, they, that's not, I think, uh, I would challenge anyone to tell me that those official stories are, are anywhere remotely true. Um, what, what they, what was really going on? I don't know. But if you're going to look at the story, like the, the, um, the thousands, it was like a trafficking thing. Is that what I'm, is, am I getting the right? The, the, the official story is that they wanted to introduce new technologies to the world and the way right, they 1893, did 1893 first use of AC electricity to light up. Right. The, right. Yeah. And the way they did it was by building literally hundreds of buildings bigger and many of them were the biggest buildings in the world. Um, the official story is that they were built temporary using plaster, wood, and linen. 
and they were only intended to, to last for a short period of time. Uh, by contract, they had to destroy them all after the fair. In many cases, they were destroyed by mysterious fires that were never investigated. In every instance, they lost millions of dollars. Um, and what that, and when you look at the pictures of these buildings, uh, they're not temporary buildings. And they're all Greco-Roman. They're all the same style all over the world. I mean, what it appears to be is as if there was a culture, a society that existed that was being erased from history. And I know that sounds crazy. So you think they would crazy. go to like key geographical locations every year for the World's Fair as an excuse to destroy whatever? To destroy like, what was there. Ruins exactly. or relics were there. And, and, to, and to make it even more I don't know if interesting, I buy it, but it's fascinating. I don't know if I buy it either, but I mean, the, 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 there's, there's a lot of weirdness. For example, uh, one more thing on the subject is uh, we'll have a world's fair in Ukraine. <laughs> the majority of state capitals in this country are made of a waterproof cement that was forgotten about until 2004. In 2004, they were renovating one of these places and they found that the cement was harder than anything we know of today. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't Portland cement. They, they actually spent a lot of money sending it to laboratories. You can find this information. Wow, online. nobody wrote the recipe down? Nobody wrote the recipe down. There's no records at all. They didn't know what it was. And when they finally took it to the lab, they claim it was called Rosendale cement. The, now the official story is that they mined it from a very specific place in Pennsylvania, the Rosendale mines that had a very specific type of you know, mineral. Hmm. But they can't make it today. They, they finally figured out how to remake it, but it's way too expensive to make today. And so, and this is what these, all these state capitals are made out of. And um, mm. I, I believe That's the foundation of the, uh, of the Statue of Liberty is made out of this cement, the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, it's, like, I um, mean, it's like the uh, soil in the Amazon, right? Have you followed that story at all? So, yeah, so, so obviously the Amazon rainforest is a big deal. And... Um, I think it was Graham Hancock who first sort of brought it to public light when he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and it was covered in the Atlantic that scientists now believe, and I hate starting a sentence like that, but I'm going, I have to. <laughs> scientists now believe that the soil in the Amazon is actually uh, human-engineered soil, and that the reason that the Amazon rainforest has taken off is because there were agricultural civilizations that used to live there thousands of years ago that figured out how to make the soil that makes everything grow like crazy. Yeah. And when those civilizations, for whatever reason, ceased to exist in those areas, then the, it was just the rainforest and the jungle sort of took off. So it's yeah. actually human engineered. There's actually a lot of evidence that suggests that Florida is human engineered or, or intelligently engineered. Same thing. It's a, the soil, the, the ground in Florida seems to be a type of cement made up of coquina, um, very strange stuff. What I will say about uh, these subjects, there's another video I made there about the orphan trains. If anyone doesn't know, uh, hundreds of thousands of orphans, many of which were actually born in baby factories um, owned by the Odd Fellows, which is a Masonic group, were mm. shipped and sold all over the country. Not just America, it was happening in Australia, it was happening... Um, they sold in, orphans, like human, sold, just straight up human trafficking. Yes, straight up human trafficking. Now, this is all very well. This is very well documented. Sure. Make of that what you will. But what I make of it, and I think the most important thing to make of it, is that we don't know who we are. We don't know. We don't know our past. We don't know. There's so much we don't know. But all that really matters is 
to live as a moral person. All that really matters is to try to make the world a better place. And the way we do that is through natural law, by cultivating the idea that the more people who learn to not tread on your neighbor, the better life we're going to have. Um, and put all our fighting aside, because really the way they divide and conquer us are with these history stories. You know, I was already saying, I was already challenging the slavery story. Like I said, it seems like there was some rather uh, powerful royal black people here back in the day. And we're divided on this narrative of slavery. You can look in the Irish slavery. The Irish slaves were the real, Irish slaves were cheaper than the black slaves. The blacks, they did have, I mean, there did seem to be black slaves, but they were top dollar. They were very expensive. If you wanted cheap slaves, you got the Irish ones. So, I mean, that's the whole point I'm trying to make is um, we need to let go of what we don't know. And we don't know the past. All we know are these stories, you know, but what we do know is that if we learn to be better people, we're going to have more freedom and more freedom is what we want. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on one American podcast, Greg. Thanks so much for giving me the time of day. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that it's not the uh, last one we have. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. You're fun to talk right. to. You have, you ask some good questions. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, sir. Yeah. I appreciate you.